Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The party drug MDMA is getting more attention as clinical studies are being done to see if psychiatrists can harness the therapeutic power of it to help patients with PTSD. Part of what helps the process is that MDMA can strengthen the bond between the therapist and the patient by enhancing feelings of trust, emotional openness, and empathy. We spoke to Liza Gross, a contributor to The Verge, for a look into how MDMA could possibly transform psychiatry. MDMA, it's been around for a really long time, since early 1900s, when Merckx developed it in the course of trying to develop a drug to stop bleeding. It was rediscovered by a chemist whose name is Alexander Shulgin, who's known for testing hundreds of psychedelic compounds and, and synthesizing them. And so he's rediscovered it. And when he tested it, he tested all of them on himself. And when he did test it, he found such a amazing properties that it produced such a, an ongoing feeling of well-being is one way he described it, and just this feeling of euphoria. And he realized that some of his friends who were psychotherapists might find this of use. So in the late 70s, there was sort of an underground cadre of pioneering psychotherapists and psychiatrists who used it to treat people, and you, you would get these remarkable case studies. So just one person and one without a controlled study, but one person after another would was finding that they were able to recover from horrible traumatic events. There was one woman who had suffered a brutal rape and had a young family, you know, young kids and a family, and she just couldn't function. And her therapist, his name was Downing at that time in the late 70s, decided to try this out with her. Or this might have been the early 80s, but it was still legal. And she reported pretty quick response. I mean, so it's sort of this fast-acting, enduring response that patients have. And so there were a lot of case reports like that, but then it got banned in 1985. It was making its way through the party scene while all of this stuff was happening, and it prompted Congress to pass legislation to ban all this stuff. First, an emergency ban. It actually even made it onto Phil Donahue because there were these anecdotal reports that right. this stuff was really great. And then Donahue heard about it because there were all these busts, because people were having too much fun <laughs> in the club scenes. So then it was banned. So then the only kind of research that could be done on it was in animals to sort of prove toxicity. That's what was happening for a long time. And the purpose of this now, though, psychiatrists are looking at this. Obviously, they're trying to help people that have PTSD symptoms. Part of the problem with people that suffer from PTSD, it's hard to relive that trauma. So when you're doing a session with somebody, it's hard for them to open up. It's hard for them to relive it. And that's where they're at. I think the Department of Veterans Affairs has said that the only way to treat PTSD is through psychotherapy. And that takes time. Psychiatrists want to use MDMA as giving them an edge, helping them supercharge that and open these empathetic pathways and let the person open up to the therapist a little bit more. Hopefully they can work through some of the issues. The idea is that to overcome a trauma that has disabled you, you sort of really can't go out and 
public because you have panic attacks. It's sort of this fight or flight response that makes sense at the moment that you're under attack, but then that never goes away. And so that's really disabling in your daily life when you just are basically going through normal daily events like going shopping or whatever, you're not supposed to have that kind of response. And so the way to deal with that, the way to treat that is to make people relive that trauma. But that, as you can imagine, is really, really hard. And so the reason that that doesn't always work is because people just give up. They just can't take it. And so what MDMA seems to do is melt the walls of these defenses that you've erected as a way to deal with your trauma, but it, it's not really helping you deal with the trauma because you can't live a normal life. It seems to just break down those walls. And then what the consensus right now seems to be that it then allows you to be more comfortable with yourself thinking about it and then also have more trust with the therapist so the therapist can help you really face that trauma and look at it in a new way and recognize that it's no longer going to harm you. Let's talk about some of the health effects and some of the stigma of using MDMA. It does increase heart rate and blood pressure, but there's also been words that it make holes in your brain, which has not panned out actually. There was a paper that was published that said it put in holes in the brains of mice that they were giving it to, but that ended up being a huge blunder in that paper that was written. Back when everybody's using it in clubs and all that, the National Institute of drug abuse seemed to be very intent on proving that this was a really dangerous drug. They were putting it in the same class, which is Schedule 1, as heroin and cocaine and meth, amphetamine. They spent millions of dollars to giving to researchers who also seemed to be intent on proving that it was problematic. And so one of these researchers, his name was George Riccardi, had also a lot of grants testing methamphetamine. Whether intentionally or through some blunder, he gave his animals methamphetamine instead of MDMA and animals died. Not surprisingly, when you give them a huge amount of meth, they had really bad effects in the brain. So he published that paper with the understanding that it was MDMA that he had given the animals. And when that paper came out in a really high-profile journal, by the way, people who are familiar with MDMA immediately recognized that it couldn't possibly have been MDMA because it just couldn't produce those effects. But the damage was pretty lasting because that gave the drug officials the ammunition they were looking for to ban the drug. I mean, <laughs> just so, it's so comical how something like that could lead to something that could have been potentially studied for so long now. We could have had a better understanding of it. And that one paper puts a hold on that. So it took researchers almost 20 years to get these bans lifted to get federal permission to test MDMA as an experimental therapy. The hope right now is that MDMA could gain FDA approval for PTSD within two years, possibly. Tell us about some of the clinical trials that are going on, some of the other studies that have been performed on this. The PTSD trials are the most well-known, and they are actually going into what's called phase three clinical trials. So this is going to go from just proving that this is a feasible thing to do, which you do in phase two. But with phase three, you do it in hundreds of people, and this is just starting recruiting people in three countries, in Canada, the U.S., and in Israel at 15 sites, and this will be hundreds of people. And so so if that goes well, then yes, it could be approved by 2021. And it's also been used in also small studies for people with life-threatening illnesses. So basically, as you can imagine, it's really hard to be confronted with your own death, and it can be very traumatic for families. And this has really shown that it really reduces anxiety in these intense psychotherapy sessions using this drug. And it's also been used, another study used it for autistic adults, so adults who have autism but suffer from crippling social anxiety. It's help them figure out how to be in social situations. To qualify for the trial, you have to have had PTSD and tried multiple other
other therapies that didn't work. So it's not just anybody can say, hey, I want to try this. I have PTSD. I want to try this out. But that second part that you just mentioned, how they were trying it out with autistic adults for social interactions. That's an interesting point, too, because as we were talking about how the drug does help break down some of these barriers. You know, everybody anecdotally knows, oh, it makes you kind of love everybody. That was one of the other things that they were looking to MDMA for because it helps break down that social awkwardness maybe. And they were looking for other possibilities in that realm. What's so amazing and why researchers are actually trying to use MDMA as a probe in the brain to figure out how normal social behaviors are mediated by the brain. It's the only one of these so-called psychedelic drugs that produces enhanced empathy and enhanced goodwills towards self and others. Scientists call these pro-social effects. This is really a remarkable thing. And so why they're hoping that they can figure out how that's happening in the brain is so they can maybe find other drugs, which is going to be a big challenge. I think many people realize (laughs) that act in a similar way so that you don't have any of the risks that MDMA has. Even though they're minimal, there are still risks. So attitudes about MDMA have been changing. What are people in the medical field and psychiatric field How are they reacting to its resurgence? It's interesting because I was actually at the psychedelic science meeting in Oakland in 2017, and Tom Insull, who used to head the National Institutes of Mental Health, was very excited about this research. And you can't get more mainstream medicine and science than that. But he really supports this idea of trying to really figure out how the brain works so that you can design drugs that have a more, they call them rational drug design, so that you can have more targeted drugs that hopefully will be more effective. Because most of the psychiatric drugs we have today just basically hit all the receptors in your brain, which is why they have so many terrible side effects. And so this is starting to actually, it seems like more people are embracing it than this certainly than had even 10 years ago, because they're seeing the data from the trials that it's being effective, even though it's in small groups of people, but it's being effective and it's relatively safe. It's an interesting discussion because one of the quotes in your article, this is where psychiatry meets anesthesia. It's this fast acting potent thing that can help kick off the process that would help people with PTSD symptoms. And there's a lot of stuff that needs to be looked into. You know, if they're taking other medications, you know, you might have to wean them off of that to give them this stuff. So it's interesting how this discussion is unfolding. And as we said, the this clinical trials that are happening right now, phase three, it's pretty far along in that process. I talked to so many people, so many psychiatrists and people who've used MDMA in small trials are really just hopeful that things go slowly enough. So it doesn't, ha- the same thing that happened before where in the 70s, the psychiatrists were just, they saw remarkable results and they just hadn't seen anything like that again. And then that amazing magic drug was taken away from them. And that That's the one concern that some of the psychiatrists I spoke with voiced, that we just need to go slow. We need to make sure that it's used in the proper setting with the properly trained people. And they're very excited about its potential to help people who have not been helped by anything else. Liza Gross, independent journalist writing for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. My favorite story of the week is a story that at first looked like a simple domestic murder, but then police learned about the alien reptilian cult. Steve Minio was shot by his girlfriend, Barbara Rogers, who had been accused of being a vampire witch reptilian super soldier. She has now been found guilty of third degree murder. We spoke to Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post, for the bizarre backstory of this extraterrestrial cult. So in July 2000. 
2017. This couple, they were out drinking at night in rural Pennsylvania, and eventually a gun becomes involved, and the next thing you know, around 2 a.m., Barbara Rogers calls 911 dispatch and says, I've shot my boyfriend. Keep put a gun to his head, put my hands around the trigger, and maybe pull the trigger, and he's dead. She was subsequently charged with murder, but what developed the trial was this incredibly bizarre situation where she explained that the couple had become involved with this extraterrestrial alien end-world apocalyptic cult, and that the beliefs that they had there and kind of a disagreement that they had with the cult founder had driven her boyfriend to basically commit suicide by proxy to force her to shoot him. So it was very, very complicated. And actually, really, what's what's very interesting about this is the jury seems to have believed at least some part of her story. Some of this is so crazy, it's hard not to believe how warped their minds had gotten through this. So a lot of this concerns the boyfriend, Steve Minio, and the quote-unquote cult leader, Sherry Schreiner, who has a ton of YouTube videos, all sorts of stuff online with a bunch of conspiracy theories and things like that. And it came to a point where it seemed that Sherry said that Barbara was bad news for Steve and that she thought that she might be some vampire super soldier type thing. And this is where things really went bad because it put him at odds with the group and with his girlfriend, too. It just kind of increased the tensions there. Yeah, essentially, this is kind of a classic conundrum, right? A a guy who's put between his friends and his girlfriend, except hear it incredibly bizarre and and, and, <laughs> right. and strange. So you have the belief system of this cult, and I'm not an expert, and there's really a lot to go through to wrap your head around it. But from what I understand, it's kind of a mix of extraterrestrial belief and revelation Christianity about the end times. And the idea, I think, is that there's this new world order plot by aliens and demons to take over humanity, and also these reptilian creatures that pretend or pose as humans. And Schreiner, in her videos and her communications with Minio, told him that she began to suspect that his girlfriend, Rogers, was in fact a reptilian, one of these aliens hiding as a human. What actually, according to Schreiner, clued her in about this was that she saw on Facebook that Rogers had talked about eating red meat. And Schreiner's worldview, if you're eating red meat, it means you're possessed by a demon or you have a certain thirst for blood. So she went to Minio and and basically told him that she thought that his girlfriend was an alien pretending to be a human. He had been following this woman since the early 2000s, it seems. And he became very upset about that. And, And he, in turn, kind of, you know, he was stuck between his belief system, his cult, and his girlfriend. And eventually, it seems he began to suspect that the cult leader, in fact, was the one who is the alien pretending to be a human. It's one of these endless cycles of enemies all around me. You were talking about how Rogers was saying that she wanted to eat meat. There was a specific thing, her wanting to eat steak tartare. And that was the yeah. thing that's uh, the raw meat shows that these people want blood. So she was this vampire witch, reptilian super soldier. And just talking about a, a little more about Sherry Schreiner. You know, I visited her YouTube page. She has a ton of videos. Each one has thousands of views. So I don't know if these are all necessarily followers, but the content that she's putting out there is very popular. It was so much so that she has a website that has these things called Oregon Blasters that will kill zombies and evil beings. And she raised more than $125,000 in a GoFundMe campaign to deploy these blasters. So 
whatever right. she's putting out there is popular. Yeah, I guess it gets to a larger picture, I think, that, that is actually fairly serious nationally. And that's about, you know, conspiracy theories and, and maybe the fragility of facts and, and, and kind of truth, you know. Anyone can start up a YouTube video and say what they want. And I, I feel like there's something kind of innately human in people about wanting to know the truth or at least wanting to know that they're getting the real truth as opposed to what they're being fed by others. And so I think that's kind of the germ of a lot of conspiracy theory followers. That they feel like they've been lied to or they're getting the wool pulled over their eyes and they want to know what's really going on. She was originally up for first degree murder. They took it down to third degree murder and her defense team was pleading for leniency because she's never been in trouble before, really. And she's a mother of three. And it seems that that it went that way. So she's going for 15 to 40 years in prison. And the family of Steve Minio was not very happy about that decision. They were very, very upset about that. They made that very clear after the sentencing that they wanted the maximum punishment for this woman. I think it was his aunt or her cousin said, this is somebody who blew someone else's brains out and she's getting this break. So they were very frustrated with kind of how justice played out here. But in the end, Roger's story in the courtroom was that she didn't know the gun was loaded, that Minio had forced her hands around the gun, had, had forced her to pull the trigger. Something very strange happened in that trailer that night, which obviously I guess we'll never know fully. And the jury seemed to lead some credence to her version of events. Kyle Swenson, reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for helping us out with this crazy story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for another story. This one concerns all the damage control that the president and his team are going through. This comes after some interviews that he did with ABC's George Stephanopoulos. And he asked him if some foreign entity came up to you and wanted to share dirt on an opponent, on a political opponent, would you take it and would you contact the FBI? And the president pretty much just said, yeah, of course I'd listen. And no, I wouldn't contact the FBI. And even when George Stephanopoulos pressured him a little bit more and said, well, the FBI director says that you should contact the FBI. He said he's wrong. So what's been the damage control after that? The story has dominated D.C., but they've been trying to spin it, saying that he did say he would contact the FBI if there was something wrong. But that's a pretty subjective rule. And we have no way of, you know, it's kind of an open invitation for foreign governments to interfere if they want to. They can try to curry favor with Trump, although if they did try to help Trump and then he was defeated, then they would look bad for the next administration. So I think they're trying to place their bets. And I don't think a country like Norway is going to spread opposition research on <laughs> Joe Biden. That, that's exactly but who he named. That. And he tried to muddy the waters himself saying, you know, I meet with heads of state, foreign governments all the time. I just met with the Queen of England. And if they told me something, am I going to go to the FBI right away? So he tried to muddy those waters. But I, I think it was pretty clear where George Stephanopoulos was going with it, especially considering everything that he just went through with the whole Mueller report, which he calls a witch hunt. And, and fine, there was nothing there on that front. But it, it's pretty clear where the question was coming from. And the president just seems like he doesn't care. Democrats were saying that he's learned nothing from this last couple of years of this investigation. But I think he believes that if he said, oh, yeah, I would contact the FBI, then it would, he would be admit, admitting that he should have done so during 
during the 2016 campaign, although there was no evidence that he knew about the Trump Tower meeting per se, and so or little evidence on that. But he did know he was asking Russia to hack into Hillary Clinton's email to try to recover some of them. And so he definitely knew that Russia was interfering. Daniel yep. Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.